Mark Caro, and welcome to the second episode of the Caro Popcast. This podcast is devoted to conversations with musicians, filmmakers, actors, chefs, and other creative people. And I'm especially excited to introduce this episode's guest. He's Bruce Thomas, the bassist for Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Bruce and Elvis had a falling out years ago, but when they worked together, they made a lot of my favorite music. They were a hot live band too. Bruce Thomas already was a veteran of the early 70s British rock band Quiver and had done much studio work when he answered an advert, as they say, for a bassist. He figured out that the artist was Elvis Costello. He learned all the songs on Costello's debut album, Mine Is True, and got the gig by appearing to be such a fast learner. He also proved to be a stupendous bassist, striking a rare balance of melody, groove, creativity, and propulsion, forming a peerless rhythm section with drummer Pete Thomas, no relation. Bruce created indelible bass lines while driving such songs as I Don't Wanna Go To Chelsea and Pump It Up. His bass was often the lead instrument on perhaps my favorite Elvis Costello in the Attractions album, Get Happy, as he transformed such songs as B-Movie and Opportunity. His work, along with the rest of the bands, was even more ornate on 1982's wonderful Imperial Bedroom, recorded with Beatles engineer Jeff Emmerich. And although he and Costello weren't great fans of the more commercial-minded follow-up, Punch the Clock, Bruce Thomas made surprising, rewarding choices on what became Costello's first U.S. Top 40 hit, Every Day I Write the Book. The attraction split after the ornery 1986 album Blood and Chocolate, a sleeper favorite of mine, and regrouped on some of 1994's Brutal Youth and all of 1996's All This Useless Beauty. I liked that last album more than Bruce Thomas did, and that was the end of the attractions. Costello has been playing since with The Imposters, which is keyboardist Steve Naive and Pete Thomas from The Attractions, plus bassist Davey Farragher, who is in the original lineup of Cracker. They've had their moments, but it's not the same. Bruce Thomas is the author of The Big Wheel, a fictionalized impressionistic account of life on the American road with Elvis Costello and the Attractions. The book pissed off Costello, who directed a song called How to Be Dumb at Bruce Thomas. Bruce also wrote Rough Notes, an insightful, entertaining, actual memoir about his life as a musician. Bruce spoke with me from his home in England and was candid, insightful, and quite entertaining as we covered his work and career. We also discussed what Megaband asked him to become its bassist and whether he and Costello have reconciled at last. Enjoy the conversation and then get out those Elvis Costello and the Attractions albums because you want to play them in order loud. Welcome to the Carol Podcast, Bruce Thomas. It's such an honor to have you here. I really appreciate it. And uh, this is great, so thanks for coming. Basically, when you're in when you're in the attractions and when you're in any other band, who does, you know, come up with those who owns those parts? Is that part of the publishing or is that part of I something? I don't I don't know. I mean as as far as I as far as I know, as far as it's worked, the guy that comes up with the chords and the lyrics has basically come up with the song. 
you know any el- anything else like bass parts and drum parts and keyboard parts and vocal harmonies and the rest as probably constitutes arrangement you know having said that some of the songs we've done lean quite uh, have lent quite heavily on the bass part and you would say uh, you know it's a bit like what is satisfaction without that guitar riff you know right. or um and uh, and um so songs like chelsea and things and pump it up are fairly fairly musically defined by the riff you couldn't really play them without the riffs absolutely so there you go we but we we worked it out between us that we kind of elvis wrote the songs but but we were credited with turning the songs into records as it were so what was the dynamic and 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 you know at the beginning and then we can sort of get into how it changed but when when you started playing with him and that was on this year's model uh would he come in with just the song on like an acoustic guitar and you would work it out or did he say to you sometimes here's a here's what i think the bass should sound like yeah i was usually left to it i mean um we were all left to it really he'd come in with the chords and the and the words and and the you know, sometimes the, um, you know, uh, sometimes the, the tempo would. I mean, um, Chelsea was like a kink song. You know, it didn't have any of that kind of riffing going on. Right. It was just spontaneous. And and uh, we have done when we got. I'm jumping ahead here, but when we got to Imperial Bedroom, we we went away for a week to rehearse the songs. Then when we got in the studio, we would complete we completely changed the tempo and the genre on the spot, you know, to catch ourselves out, as it were. Uh, so I mean, for instance, uh, there's a song "Tears Before Bedtime," which sounded like a six-eight ballad, like that John Lennon "Starting Over" song, if you remember right. that, you know. It's and and it it was nothing like the sort of New Orleans type song that it became but we would just um make them up make up uh, a new arrangement on the spot kind of thing right or man out of time which was this you know big screechy thing that was an, a, a, a mad sounding record yeah and then it became this sort of stately galleon didn't it <laughs> well and, and and to keep skipping around then every day i write the book i think you had a more of sort of a mercy beat sort of version first yeah we, we i mean we've had yeah there's 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 a probably two versions of most of the songs kicking around somewhere if they haven't already been surfaced on uh, re-releases and things yeah yeah a lot of them have so yeah. so let's back up for a sec so you join the attractions as at, you know responding to an advertisement but you already already had you know a pretty distinguished career and and you were a little bit older than the other attractions and yeah. were more rooted in sort of the earlier 70s rock scene yeah um and you're playing football with uh pink floyd and david gilmore actually yeah. asked you to join pink floyd yeah uh, yeah yeah i was um well in in retrospect more recently i've you know more recently later on learned learned what the dynamics in that band were right <laughs> same as dynamic in most band they falling out all the time but um but uh at that time, yeah, um, I don't know if 
David Gilmore said to me that they want Roger wanted to be the MC and didn't want to be stuck behind the bass and he wanted to be more like up front with a megaphone and whatever he did, you know, and and um uh he always thought of it as his band and and Gilmore as a sort of you know, recruit just a just a guitar player. I think Roger Waters thought of himself as a mastermind, but that's by the by. David Gilmore said to me, "Would I like to play bass for Pink Floyd?" And I, <laughs> I said, "Oh yeah, 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 sure." I thought he was joke. I thought he was. Um, I thought he was joking, but it turns out. I mean, I know, I know Guy Pratt, and I know that Rick Wright left the band and went back into the band and on wages. So um, I thought at one time I'd, I'd turned down the offer of a, a fleet of Ferraris like Nick Mason has, but I reckon I'd have probably been just on a good salary or something and not a full member of the band because I think that's how they were working it even then. So I've kind of... I've resigned myself to the fact that I would I would have been fired anyway. <laughs> At what point did they ask you that? That was in about um, seventy four. So after Dark Side of the Moon, before which yeah, you were here. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I bet the songs would have gone a little faster if you'd been their bass player. Uh, well, I think I might have had to fit in with them. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't that... Remember, I was playing country rock at the time with Quiver. Uh, you know, it was pre-attractions, and and uh, Quiver and Pink Floyd had the same manager, and so we ended up supporting them on many gigs. I've seen Pink Floyd be you know does tens dozens of times and so um it it wasn't that ridiculous an idea really that um he he asked me to to to, uh, to join but anyway right i mean actually several of the members of quiver ended up playing with pink floyd i mean tim renwick dick dick perry willie wilson you know yeah, all of them yeah. at some point yeah well they're all they're all from cambridge um the quiver boys apart from me and and um you know we're, we're all from cambridge like um the same uh, humble pie you know were and uh, jerry shirley and steve marriott and rick wills and those guys were, were all cambridge boys i think it's funny that you were almost disqualified from joining the attractions because your favorite band was steely dan steely dan yeah uh, i think it's really funny that elvis ended up supporting steely dan a couple of years ago oh right <laughs> Yeah, doing yeah. a tour with them. I'll come around. I turns see... out that my turns out that my taste wasn't that bad because I can't <laughs> think of of many bands of uh, top Steely Dan for quality of album releases and consistency of songwriting and playing. Absolutely. Although really, they you know after the first tranche of albums, they were more uh, Fagin and Becker with with uh, you know Uber Session Man, but even so. You know, they've their body of work is impeccable. When you were starting out, were your heroes? Because I think of you as sort of a, I think of you as a very melodic bass player. Um, yet you also sort of push the songs forward, and then you also have this just great sense of groove. And those are hard things to mix. Yeah. And, and I've seen you cite uh, like Duck Dunn, James Jamerson, and you know McCartney. Were those and John Ent Entwistle? Oh yeah. right. Yeah, and that, and and I guess. 
you know, you've you've basically answered your question there because, um, you know, you can see. I, I know that Doc Dunn was a, a groove monster, and and Jameson was great for syncopation. McCartney was great for melody. John Entwistle, you know, knew how to use the bass as a feature instrument kind of thing and take the lead. So, um, you know, um, I would I would say that that quartet should be completed probably by Jaco Pistorius, but I mean, right. he was way ahead of what I was, you know, anything I could contemplate doing. Um, after I've I've had I've looked at, into him in recent years, and I kind of I, I watched somebody do an analysis of one of his parts, you know, and they did the first bar, the first chord, and what he was doing, and I thought, well, that sums up my entire career, really. <laughs> it took me took me twenty, thirty years to figure out what he's doing in that one bar. So um, he's away on his own, that guy. Right. Yeah. No. It's this. But I, I bought. I was listening to Hajira recently, and it's just like he just takes Joni Mitchell to this other place when he's playing on those records. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I didn't realize. I, I actually saw Jaco Pastorius when he was in um, Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders, which was a, like a soul show band, and um, they were on. Um, doing cabaret at a hotel we were staying in in California in the late 70s. And um, and I was talking to somebody about Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders, and they said, well, you know who that bass player was, don't you? And I said, no. I said, well, that was Jaco Pastorius in that earlier incarnation. Crikey. <laughs> <laughs> Had you noticed the bass playing at that show, or did he just evolve a lot? I, I didn't. I, I didn't. It was just a, a, a good soul band, you know. And I, I, I didn't realize that. Uh, I mean, he was in. He just fitted in the band. He was like one of James Brown's players, you know. He just sat in with the band. Right. He wasn't like soloing or anything. It's just that later he blossomed somewhat, <laughs> to say the least, you know. So you already had this whole career with Quiver, and then you're with the Attractions. Did was the way the Attractions set up? Did that bring out? you know, more of your sort of bass playing or did that sort of allow your bass playing to blossom in a way that you hadn't? Yeah, well, um, yeah, yeah. El, um, Elvis very recently described, said that um, he considered that he, he and Pete were the motor of the band and that Steve Nive and I did the flourishes. And the fact that Elvis wasn't really, didn't want guitar solos in the band or couldn't play them or didn't want them. I mean, whatever. Um, uh, uh, I, I often played what a guitar player would do or even what a horn section would do or some, or, you know, another instrument would do. Um, so I filled in, it, it worked in the same way as The Who was really a rhythm guitarist with a lead drummer and a lead bass player. Right. I love this quote that you you have this quote uh, where you're talking about playing with Jim Keltner and he says, Jesus, you step on it, don't you? And he's referring to how you push the beat, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, he did say that. I was doing a session with him in <laughs> with Booker T on keyboards as well, hmm. my finest hour. And um, yeah, we were doing this kind of 
mid-tempo thing and yeah he said geez you step on it yeah <laughs> uh, but it's true i mean uh, uh it, it's a, it was a bit of a kind of standing joke <laughs> among certain musicians you know but i think that's part of what those that early energy of those attractions records i mean like i don't think of you as sort of providing the flourishes i think of you as part of the motor or even the accelerator you know something like chelsea yeah well it's it's I never, I never went off showing off for the sake of it, or just because I could. I mean, I always served the song first. But I mean, something like lip service, where somebody would just play a bass part through the bass. I, I made sure to do a different bass pattern on every line. So if you like, there's there's a line of vocals and a line of music, but. It happens four times, but I don't repeat the bass part four times. I play a different bass part, you see, each each time, uh, like a descending line or a little melodic figure or something else, you know. And and uh, I always kind of, I guess, wrote the song within a song. How did how did it feel to be playing those songs on that album after you know everything else that you'd done? Because you're very disdainful of sort of the L.A. rock laid back sort of thing, and now you're in the attractions. Like, how did that feel just being in that group? What you mean doing the My Amy's True stuff? Yeah, and this year's yeah because you're learning those songs, and then you're, you're then you're doing this year's model in the studio. Did did you feel like oh you know the weights have been taken off my legs or something? Well, I I, I was I had the utmost respect for um, the backing band on the first album, Clover, because, I mean, when I was in Quiver, we would have aspired to be as good as Clover. <laughs> right. So even with the similarity of the name, maybe. But um, so, uh, you know, they were they were a great band. Absolutely. And, you, you know, from where they subsequently went on that they were. So I had no problem with um with that stuff it's just that when we started um doing our you know doing this year's model that the sound just emerged i mean nobody sat down and say this is what the attractions are going to sound like the bass is going to push the beat blah blah you know it's going to it it's um we there was a lot of um in my case uh, there was a lot of pent-up creativity you know it's the band i've been waiting for I was I hate I was sick of country rock and James Taylor and all that stuff, and I said for crying out loud, you know, the early signs were bands like Doctor Feelgood, you know. In fact, the band I was trying to get get in at the time that I joined the Attractions was just after uh, Wilco Johnson left Doctor Feelgood, and I wanted to play with Wilco. I wanted to play short songs, fast R and B, you know, with a bit of energy and. Right. And uh, anyway, and um, Pete was thinking about the same thing, you know, and he, he was playing with a, a folk rock singer in, in America, and he came back thinking about Wilco Johnson's band and so forth. So so um, you could say, in a way, that the approach of Dr. Feelgood was a model for the attractions, you know, energetic three-minute songs. Right, and you knew, and you knew Elvis's songs at the time because when you saw the, the advert, you you thought, oh, I think I know who this is for. Yeah, I saw the advert and guessed it was for for Elvis, and then, um, I did, you know, everyone, <laughs> nearly everyone knows this story. I mean, I went out and 
bought the records and learnt them and then went to the audition and pretended I was hearing for them for the first time, you know. Right. <laughs> amazing improviser. Yeah, amazing. You've got it you've got the part just right. <laughs> what did what did you think of his songs? Uh um well he's obviously a, a good songwriter and it, it was good. Remember that was coming on the back of the you know, all the Genesis stuff and all the prog right. yes and all that, that somebody's somebody's writing verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus, chorus out. You know, I thought, ah. And um, he obviously was a good, good, you know, obviously was a good songwriter from day one. So, so um, and, you know, we all, we've all got this um, sort of intrinsic, um absorbed musical vocabulary you know you can we all know I, i'm not going to try and play like um like uh rick wakeman's oh what was the bass part on six wives of henry the eighth let me see what was the bass part to anne boleyn no but you know what the bass part to you really got me is like or can't explain or right you know any other any beatles who kink stones stuff so that's where we were we were uh, i mean this year's model was really um almost a, a a homage if you like to um to the british beat group boom you know right i always thought of us as a beat group rather than a rock band right with a with a very prominent keyboard instead of two guitars yeah yeah but then there were there were there were bands that had a prominent keyboard like the animals or something weren't there so absolutely yeah, yeah or, or zombies um, even, um, or the Moody Blues, or Spencer Davis, or so. So that was really the reference point for all that. Yeah. So just to fill in the gaps for anyone who's not, who I, mean, I would think if you've gotten this far, you probably know this, but this is for people who are listening. You had Pete Thomas playing the drums, who you had, uh, who you had run into when he was a very young man, and then you had Steve Neve or Naive as the uh, keyboardist, who I think you actually named. Um, gave him his num de plume, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and then obviously Elvis Costello playing guitars and giving you the directive, no solos. Yeah. Um, at, at what point, was it right from the start where you thought, oh, this is like kind of a special band, or did it sort of take a while, and did you ever have doubts about we went, it? We went away to rehearse. We went away for a, a week to rehearse in the country, as bands do, and then we did. We had seven days rehearsal, basically during which time we learned My Aim is True, and worked up the songs that became this year's model so we then had a kind of an hour set and we did um we did a warm-up show at the village hall we'd been rehearsing in in cornwall and jake riviera the man a manager came down from london with a few of the stuff from the the stiff records office and some of the locals from the local village and uh we did our set, and every, and he said, "Oh well, what you've got to do, boys, you've got to walk up to the mic, you've got to do this, you've got to run on, you know, doing Tom Hanks in that uh, <laughs> that film, uh, yeah, that thing you do, you know, you boys, you've got to run on, you know, do this, wear shades." Wear. He said, "Oh," he said, "Forget it." He said, "It's a world class band, right?" You know, and that was after a week. That was one week, and he said, "That this is a world class band." So we knew it was good. You knew it right away. We did the first. We did our first proper, proper show in um, in Cornwall with a 
with a guy called Wayne County who's since became Jane County or might have been Jane County at the time. I don't know. That, um, we'll leave him to his gender fluidity. But um, uh, he said, "Who? What's your band's name? I've never, I've, I've never heard of you guys." I said, "No, it's our first gig." He said, "Well, jeez, we can't follow that." <laughs> he lit, you know, literally. So, no, I mean, there's no point in being falsely modest. We knew we were good. In in your book, Rough Notes, which is your memoir, yeah. uh, as opposed to The Big Wheel, which is also another book I read, which is sort of a fictionalized version. But in Rough Notes, you have a, there, you talk about touring with Blondie at some point, and you're sort of flipping a coin as to who goes first. And yeah, yeah. you had to go before Blondie and then just came out with like, it sounds like just the most aggressive uh, rock and roll set yeah. ever which, and have... Yeah, well, that was much later. That was much later, later on in the day. But we, we, um, we that's true. Yeah, they got top billing. So we, we said, right, we're not doing Allison. We're doing slipping and a sliding, slow down. It was like the John Lennon rock and roll album. You know, it was every. I would uh, shit kicking if you can say that, or tub thumping if you can, beat, if you want to beat the other one. But um, you could say shit kicking; it's fine. Uh, well, fine. Well, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, yeah, yeah. Let's get them, boys. You know. Well, there was this aggression to your sound right from the start. I mean, I remember getting. I don't know if it was the single of Allison, or it was one of the singles, and the flip side was the live version of Miracle Man. Right. And so it was you guys doing it instead of the Clover version that's on Miami is True. Yeah. And, and your version just pops off of the... I mean, it just explodes out of the speakers, and you're like, yeah. oh, this is the difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they were... Yeah. That was, um, was that a collective? Was that a collective attitude you all had? Did that come from Elvis? Was that all of you kind of like? Think it's all, yeah, we're just I gonna. I think it was. I think it was just um, what they call it—a gestalt, you know, a combined the 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 whole being more than the sum of the parts, you know. It's kind of because like because punk is start, you know, punk has happened. I mean, Sex Pistols are out not for that long though, and. It's not really punk. It's not really. It's got the energy of punk and the musicality of new wave pop, I suppose. Right. Whatever, however you want to call it, you know. But um, I wouldn't call it punk. Uh, but it's it's certainly got. Um, we, you know, I mean, you know what bands were around at the time, like the jam and things. I mean, they weren't exactly laid back, were they? No. Or the class. Yeah, but they they were all kind of coming out of it, right? And it, it was, there was sort of like that punk energy, and then but then mixing it with this musicality, you know. I mean, yeah. I mean, buzz, the Buzzcocks as well, where people are like, yeah. oh, they're punk, and then you listen to like these pop yeah. songs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, I think between that and just the sort of the attitude in the songs, there was there was really this. Again, it, it was it, it was a sort of aggressive sound, even with a keyboard, which you th- sort of thought of as you know, it just it was a different sound but it just had this propulsion that um you know it just kind of cut through everything i wouldn't have wanted to follow you guys on stage either uh, yeah and then the gigs were even more intense <laughs> yeah yeah you it know. seemed to bother you when the gigs got longer because i think you felt like they should just be like in and out and just you know yeah yeah i i i when the set started going towards two hours you know and then two and a half hours and Bordering, you know, then that, we can blame Bruce Springsteen for that. The first time I saw you was on the Imperial Bedroom tour, 
And I could have gone and seen you on the trust tour, and I always regretted not getting the ticket for that. But uh, it was, it, I think it was 37 songs. It was up at Alpine Valley in East Troy, Wisconsin. Oh. And it was, uh, it was 37 songs long. And I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic because I was like soaking it in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, well, you were probably what, getting worn out up there. Yeah, it was difficult at that point to think what to let. I mean, I liked it when when we only had an, one album out, and it was a, a seventeen song set, you know. And um, then it crept up to the mid twenties, and then when he got up to forty songs, <laughs> I was like, it was just a, um, you know, my uh, my favorite favorite um, analogy was that, that was you know a tennis match with a tie break that goes to you know, 29-27 isn't better than one that's just five sets. So the best football game isn't one that goes to extra time and penalty shootout. And, you know, there's something to be said for leaving people wanting more. But at the same time, when you're on sort of seven albums or whatever it was at that point, what do you leave out? You know, we've had words about that before in the past. I mean, I've made my point, you know. <laughs> so so to, to go back quickly and then we'll move forward to uh this year's model pump it up um it's funny because like now there's a spanish language version of this year's model coming out that's correct yeah there's um well there's a spanish language version of this year's model apparently right pump it up's just the first single the album's out in september i've heard it i've got a copy of it i mean to be fair it's not bad i'm not still not quite sure why he's done it other than to top up his um pension pot after not gigging for a year and a half but um but uh it's 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 nothing to be embarrassed about put it that way it actually sounds good the playing's still good and the singers do it with with a degree of sincerity and passion and um and it it kind of works and the remix is interesting because it certain things uh, improved like the drum sound and the the relation the bass drums a lot a lot louder so you can hear the bass and bass drum in sync a lot better you know uh so it sounds it sounds more like a rock band than a beat group put it that way yeah the the pump it up um i mean it sounds like pump it up in spanish it's like basically it's still your performance and it's you know it's and then it also the run out is longer, so you get to hear it, you know, a little bit longer, which is which is fun instead of having it fade a little earlier. Just a little more of the rock is kind of two guitar thing going on. Yeah, yeah, because it's Mick Jones of, of the Clash playing the second guitar on that, and um, and so uh, yeah, it's 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 okay. They kept we they kept um, the hook, the chorus is in in English, you know. Right and just the verses in in Spanish, so that so the it wouldn't work if the if the chorus hook you know pump it up or whatever hand in hand or or was was translated, but um, by and large uh, I think some of them are actually come out better, like little triggers for instance is one that comes to mind and also there are. I think five or six bonus tracks like um, Big Tears and Crawl Into the USA and things, so which uh, sound good. So it's probably for for um, 
Spanish-speaking people, South Americans, completists, and whatever, you know? Right. Anybody, anyone who wants to hear this hears model in Spanish. Well, and it's, it, it, I think that so much of the music industry now is sort of, here's here's something you love, and you, here's an opportunity to listen to it with fresh ears, whether it's the new 180-gram half-speed mastered vinyl version of it, or yeah, you know yeah, the alternate yeah. the alternate takes of the songs, yeah, or the yeah. songs in Spanish. So here you go. Um, you love this year's model. Here's a new version of it for you. I'm just waiting for the Lithuanian version of Imperial Bedroom. <laughs> there you go. Do you do you have distinct memories of uh, coming up with a bass line for Pump It Up, by the way? Um, it's not an intellectual thing. It's a felt thing. You know, it's like, um, yeah, it's like you move the furniture around in a room till it looks right. You know, you shift the notes around that you're playing until they sound right. But on later... On later analysis, I thought, well, that's um, that riff is actually the riff to um, The Price of Love by the Everly Brothers, which we did as a cover. But it's the notes of You've Got to Lose by Richard Helen the Voidoids, who were our support band. And then there's a, there's a couple of beats gap where I thought, well, you can't have a one-bar a one phrase. It's got to be two bars. So I stuck in the best bass riff of all time, which is you really got me. So it's going the the, the notes of one, the, the the timing of another and and a bit of another riff thrown in. So it's a com it's a hybrid of three riffs, but I didn't sit down and think, what shall I play to this song? I know I've got a good idea. You know, it's it's later on think, oh that's what that's what I did, is it? You know. <laughs> I, I think about how the bass sort of shapes so many of these, you know, recordings that we we really love. Like I, you know, like the Beatles come together. I think that people think of this as this yeah, sort of quintessential yeah. John song, but you know, yeah. it's it's kind of this you can't catch me Chuck Berry thing going on until yeah. you get Paul coming in with a you know that bass line and yeah. that Ringo drum that goes with it, and then Paul's sort of swampy keyboard thing, and that's sort of what turns it into what we think of as come yeah. together. Um, yeah. And Pump It Up is also, I mean, like, there was just this thing where, you know, Elvis was reminding everyone, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's you know, like Subterranean Homesick Blues or something like that. Because what, Olivia Rodrigo, she has a song and people were saying, sounded like Pump It Up. And he's like, look, there's a, he's, he was gracious in saying, you know, there's a long history of people borrowing from things. But I would imagine when he came in with Pump It Up, it probably didn't sound like well, it does once you put that bass and that beat on yeah, it. Yeah, well there's there there are two there are two riffs in pump there's the there's the you know dum dum do 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 one and there's the uh dun 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 which was he has to be gracious about Olivia Rodriguez lifting that because that was lifted off the damned anyway. <laughs> that 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 riff was on um was on a damned record, so that was already it was already borrowed by the time we got it. So, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, there is so much, but I mean, like, you, look, you could sing Won't Get Fooled Again over Peace, Love, and Understanding, too, but there's still distinct songs, but that da, 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 right? Yeah. They're pretty close. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the Who, half of the Who songs are the same chord sequence, I think, you know. Um, uh, so, um, yeah. It's um, it, I call it organic sampling. It's before there were samplers; you just use our ears and copied things. You know? Right. Well, that's what the and the blues is just that. I mean, it's yeah. you know, it's always the same three chords. 
Um, yeah. Not always, but we weren't but ever a lot as obvious. We weren't ever as obvious about borrowing as Led Zeppelin were, for instance. Right. You know, yeah, they were. They, they got a little bit naughty at times. I think the one I think the one I noticed most at the time was uh, the the fade out of Party Girl, reminding me of the end of uh, You Never Give Me Your Money. Oh, that one, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a kind of that that wasn't that was deliberate. That was an homage. But it was yeah, it was it was a yeah, it was a deliberate quote. Yeah, that was fun because the Beatles, as a guy who you know loved the Beatles, I was like, oh, I get that one. Yeah, yeah, we that was you know. So I know yeah. you've talked talked about this a lot, but just but the the incident in Columbus, which uh, just briefly was you know Elvis being drunk and you guys were arguing with yeah. him, Stephen Stills and Bonnie Bramlett and yeah. sort of winding them up and a racial epithet was used and it was made public. How much yeah. how much was how much do you think that incident changed the band's direct the trajectory? Massively, we were due to. Um... At the show, we were due to play a, a concert at Shea Stadium, and there'd been 250,000 ticket applications. So we went from that to having to stay out of America for a year and a half. So I would say that was a change of trajectory. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you yeah. think musically that I mean I mean obviously you listen to Get Happy which seems so influenced by Stax and yeah, you know, yeah. more I, I mean is that a well, subliminal thing, thing a deliberate thing or would you guys get because no. it was because Get Happy is certainly not the commercial like next step up from armed forces that you might have expected no but it it, it was um, it wasn't oh let's let's um, you know let's do our penance kind of thing it was. Um, in fact, it was a pop record, and we started, um, it, as you say, there was two versions of everything. We started recording, and one of the first songs we did was B-Movie, and, and we were doing it, putting it down. I said, we sound like bloody Blondie, you know? Um, it was, uh, you know, ding, 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 ding. And uh, so we sound <laughs> like one of, our, one of our copyist bands, you know? That's uh, this isn't uh, you know we, we've done that we've done the we've done the the beat group we've done the pop record now what we you know so we um we um took a different tack I mean uh, I, I went out I think I, I just it's another I just improvised that bass part for B movie everybody joined in and that's a first take first take jam that was used. Right. And uh, it's probably one of one of the better bass parts that I did, but it was completely made up on the spot. But um, uh, including the tempo and the everything, people just joined in with it, and and um, um, and then we decided we'd go into a more, uh, I guess we call it roots, you know, American roots record, as it were, and um, soul, funk, jazz, whatever. Um, so at that point I made up a mixed, a mixtape of all, cause that was my era, you know, the duck Dunn Jameson stuff. And, um, so it was going to be a bass, a bass driven album anyway. And, um, 
and Elvis bought everybody a copy of Mot- Motown Chartbusters Volume 3, and then we kind of immersed ourselves in that and then went and did the record. Right, yeah, and then you have, like, Temptation sort of, you know, has a little, that, that time is tight like, going in. Like, time is time right. is tight, yeah, and so on, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's very bass-forward. I mean, you know, songs like Opportunity or Secondary Modern, um, the, you know, the main melodic lines are really, you know, you driving them. Oh, yeah, there's a bit Al Green in there or something, I guess, with the sound of that, you know, nice. nice. I quite like, it's like like an open sound, you know, it's not full. It's just, uh, it's, I I always think of Al Green with those songs, but then that's just, not, doesn't sound like him. It just, it's just that, that, um. You know, we're in no rush to get anywhere. I think that was the first of your albums that I heard right when it came out, because I'd just sort of come around. Like, I'd, I'd sort of made my own musical transition from sort of, you know, sort of super tramp and that sort of thing to like, oh, no, this this Elvis Costello right. Attractions is more like more my speed after all. And and I remember hearing Get right. Happy and thinking, oh, it's a sort of like, it's all these really short songs and it's not all this kind of glossy, shimmery stuff. And then I just played it and played it and yeah. played it. And I think it, you know, it's it's still, if I had to keep just one it might be that one i i love get happy and i and I, and eventually i was just like oh this is better than armed forces this is better than those other ones but because there's just some sort of a depth in the song right. and there's something about like how each one of those there are 20 songs and each one just totally sticks yeah it's a it's um it's a good album for sure yeah um you know and uh i'm always pleased when people do um covers of my bass parts on youtube and things you know oh i really like this bass part listen to this and well yeah okay i will <laughs> do you have a favorite uh, album that you did with the attractions i'd say the top three uh this year's model get happy and, Im- and imperial bedroom i would agree i would agree with you i'd say there's a second tier of records with maybe trust and um trust and armed forces and then there's a third tier, and a fourth tier, and a fifth tier. <laughs> you know. Okay. <laughs> what's what's on your what's on your fifth fifth tier? Probably something like Goodbye Cruel World, yeah, and um, yeah, and all this useless beauty. Um, well, we'll get to all this useless beauty in a second. I, 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 this is also skipping ahead. I, I won't skip ahead. I was going to say something about Blood and Chocolate. I've come around a lot all on right. Blood and Chocolate. I listened to that one much more than I would have thought I listened to. Yeah, that's probably, that could be, um, that could be kind of third tier with Armed Forces, you know. Yeah, there's, there's something about that record that I just come back to, and uh, it's, it's again, some music is a funny thing where they're sort of like your, your, the ones that hit you right away. I mean, Punch the Clock, the first time I heard it, I really enjoyed it, but I also felt like I got it. Like, like I, it wasn't like the hundredth listen of Punch the Clock, I wasn't finding new stuff. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, Blood and Chocolate, some guy wanted to do it, was doing a book about it, and I went to meet him, and we sat down, and he he, he, he said, um, right, so, you know, start talking. <laughs> and I said, I said, I can't remember what tracks are on it. I said, what was on Blood and Chocolate? And he started telling me, went, oh, yeah. I said, oh. That's funny. I said, I'm afraid I've got you here under false pretenses. <laughs> 
you know, I can't remember. Except that it was all done in one room live, you know, at stage volume with no separation or anything, so nothing could be mixed. It's the nearest we'd done to a live album. And it was uh, not a particularly um, happy experience, you know. There was a lot of tension. And I realize I'm bouncing around now, but I remember when Goodbye Cruel World came out and you played on The Tonight Show with Joan Rivers guest hosting and came out and did I Hope You're Happy Now. And I thought, well, this is interesting. They're like not playing anything from the new album that they're promoting. They're playing the song I've Never Heard. And it was kind of at this you know, sort of mid, sort of watch your step sort of tempo, and then it didn't show up on the next album, which was King of America, but then it did show up on Blood and Chocolate at about twice the speed and aggression, and I'm wondering sort of what happened to get it from that kind of, you know, watch your step sort of thing to this thing that, again, just kind of jumps out of the speakers. Oh, who knows? I mean, there are versions of, there's a slow ballad version of High Fidelity I saw, there's a a live gig in Paris where we were obviously still working up songs for for Get Happy. It's for this year's model set with some earlier, uh, the earlier part of it has got some Get Happy songs and there's high fidelity on that. Right. And it's a slow ballad. It's like it's like station to station, you know, like the Bowie thing. It was it was slow, slow, and. Um, you know, there's two. There's a slow, but you know, there's a slow ballad version of "Climb Time Is Over" and a sort of Motown version of it, and so on. It's like there's two or three versions of everything. Right. You were talking about the sort of Blondie version of "Be Movie," and there, of course, through the magic of YouTube, you can go and find these concerts from like '79. And well, you can find you, you can find a, you can find some of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there some was of them are. yeah, there was one that I think he was opening with "I Stand Accused," and I don't know if that's after the incident. Um, but I know "Be Movie" was on there. And it was much faster. Uh, "High Fidelity" was much slower. Um, yeah. All the choices you made, I thought, thought were right in terms of how you finalized those songs. By the way, um, but but yeah, it all it all sort of changed. Um, well, let's let's talk real quickly about Imperial Bedroom um, being one of the favorites. When Elvis came in with those songs, did you think immediately, oh, this is going to be a, a step up as sort of an album, or did that sort of come through the sort of performance and production and you know whatever happened in the studio? Well, no, that that that's um, that was um, that we we rehearsed all those songs a particular way, and then when we got in the studio, we changed them uh, on the spot. As I said before, I mean, Tears Before Bedtime became this New Orleans thing when it was a like a John Lennon ballad, and um, and uh, and as you said, Man Out of Time, which was a sort of almost a full-on, I don't know what you'd call it, mad mad song became this kind of stately ballad and and so on. And and you probably know that if you've read read my book, you'll know the, the story beyond belief. Pete Thomas right. had a hangover and didn't turn up to the studio, so we recorded it with a click track. So, um, which is why there's no real bass, bass is just marking time till the end. And, um, it's just punk the music's just punctuating the chord changes and when pete eventually turned up you know started to put those headphones on put the drums on you get one shot of this <laughs> you know and uh that's why the drums don't come into t- they just play f- fills and 
you know, tap along until the end when everything comes in for the out, for the outro. And um, so that was a one, a one-off thing, you know. Um, but uh, things like, I don't, um, I mean, some of that album was recorded without Elvis in the studio. So with just the attractions, we did a couple of tracks and then he had to come in and, well, I don't like them. I don't like that. I don't like this. I don't like that. And, and in, in the end, he used them, you know, but... Um, yeah, I but, think in the book you said, Boy with a Problem in Pigeon English, you guys worked up the arrangements on your own. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How different was it working with Jeff Emmerich, uh, you know, who obviously was the engineer on Beatles albums from Revolver on? Uh, it's, it's So you're working with him instead of Nick Lowe? Yeah, well, you know... We're all Beatles fans, aren't we? Everybody is. So it's great to have somebody to have all the anecdotes, you know, about how Sergeant Pepper was recorded and how the bass sound was got and how they used to overdub the bass parts and this, that and the other, you know. So, so, um, so, yeah, yeah, we were just, we were fans, you know. <laughs> so when there's something like, you know, like backwards harpsichord at the end of You Little Fool, is that you guys saying, hey, let's put a little beetle thing on here, or, or is that him doing that? Yeah, we were, we, were, we, were, um, we were trying to kind of, yeah, make a reference to some of the things they did, like the, like the telephone sounding voice, you know, on, on um, I think that's on You Little Fool as well. There's like the EQ on the voice sounds like it's down the telephone, like you no know, Lucy in the sky with diamonds or something. Right. There's, there's there's little references, you know. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, George Martin was around as well because it was his studio, Air London. So he, Steve Naive, wrote some arrangements, didn't he, for um, and in every home and things like that, and. Um, and town crier, I think it was, and right. he 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 had got George Martin to look them over, which is great because he looked at this huge musical score and he and he just zoned in on one note. He said, "Clarinet can only go one note below what you've written there," <laughs> and he just knows it looking at the sheet music. He just looked at the score. He said, "A clarinet can't play that note. Its top note is one note below that." <laughs> That's fantastic. And just having George Martin, like, looking over your score, I would think that would be pretty heady. That's like Mozart, isn't it? When he heard a, when he heard a score and said, oh, I, I, I can play that now. He said, what, after one listen? Yeah. <laughs> Did working on that album stretch you as a bassist? I mean, I know you talked about sort of doing different things, like on Shabby Doll, playing an added ninth harmony. Yeah, and... I tried, you know, the, yeah, I'm playing chords on Shabby Doll and I used an eight-string bass on Boy With A Problem. And I always tried... Not just to do a bass part, but the bass part, if you right. see what I mean, to write the song within it, to make a dis to make a distinctive difference to the proceedings, rather than just fill in the gaps. So, um, you know, because it's this something it's not the bass parts; it's something else to listen to, you know, as well as the vocal line. Yeah. The bass line, I, I try not to clash. I try and work with the vocal line um, to create it. It's counterpoint, I suppose. That's what they call it, isn't it? Right. You know? and, you're, and it's not obvious. It's like you're playing it in a way that only, like no other bass player would be playing the parts that you're playing. 
No, 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 I know. But I mean, you could say that for any any good bass player, really. Um, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's just yeah. I mean, you have this just again this melodic sense, but also it's just kind of going in different ways, and it's sort of it's it, it's a it's a tricky balance of you're not drawing attention to yourself at the expense of the song, but you're no, but you're playing parts that you notice in the song. So you notice the bass in Shadow yeah, Doll yeah. or, you know, the loved yeah, ones or something yeah, yeah. like that, where it's just a very, you know, totally infectious kind of bass part that's sort of moving all around, but is also driving the song forward at the same time. And you don't think, oh, this is like a bass virtuoso performance where you're just listening to a bass solo. No, exactly. It's yeah. serving the song still. Yeah. And that's the tricky thing. That's the thing. That's that. That was always the that was always the plan. So, I guess it's worked sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that album. I, I that was another album that I just played and played and played and played and played when it came out. Like I remember that it was the summer before I went to college, and it just was, it just it was totally. It, it, when I when I set up my turntable in my first dorm room in college, I I, I the first mm. thing I put on was Imperial Bedroom. So the first song I ever heard in college was uh, Beyond Belief, because I'm like, you know, this is the... And I gave it thought, too. Like, what's the first album I should play? Oh, it has to be Imperial Bedroom. Um, and I remember it came out, and, and it got these glowing reviews, and, you know, New York Times wrote a big piece. And I remember the ads for it, it had a picture of the cover, and it just said, Masterpiece? Question mark? And everybody, everybody went, no! <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people agreed, but then, I, as you note in the book, it was... It was critically embraced, but it wasn't really a huge seller, particularly. Mm, I don't, yeah, I guess. I, yeah. Well, I kind of wonder if that's sort of an, an, another kind of inflection point. I mean, it wasn't really an album full of, like, these sort of singles. It was just, but but it was, like, if, if Imperial Bedroom had be, been this, like, sort of commercial breakthrough, I wonder if that would have been a different trajectory than what happened, which was that then you did Punch the Clock with... Uh, you know, uh, Langer Winstanley, and it was uh, yeah. more of a conscious effort to like, okay, now we're going to make a commercial record. Yeah, yeah. Well, even Blood and Chocolate was a return to sort of commerciality, I guess, an attempt. Sort of. You know? um, doesn't that but, one doesn't sound as much like it? I mean, Tokyo Storm Warning was the first single, and it was seven, like seven minutes long, almost. Yeah, yeah. No, there's. I, I've got a, yeah, I mean, I don't think Elvis wanted to be a pop star, put it that way. I don't think he ever wanted it. I don't think he ever wanted that. I think he was quite happy in, uh, I think he always wanted to be an elder statesman. Yeah, it sounded like he was giving it a shot on Punch the Clock, though. Like, that sounded like it was sort of the conscious, okay, here we're going to make our happy, you know, Yeah, well, that was, and... I mean, he, he disowned that record as soon as we made it, said it was too glossy and, you know, whatever. And and, and Langer and Stanley were, were, were flavor of the month at the time, although they were kind of friends of ours as well. So, but, um, yeah, yeah. I like those Madness records, so it's like, you know, I, yeah. I knew them from Madness, so I'm like, oh, okay, you know, but, but it's... yeah. And he did write the music of uh, of shipbuilding. He did write the music of shipbuilding, yeah, which is which is good, which is one of our better um, recordings. Yeah, that is on there, isn't it? And that's a that's one of our be probably one of our best tracks, you know, with the trumpet and everything. Well, and every day I write the book, which really was sort of the biggest single yeah, you guys have had that's up at the, the time. Yeah, it, yeah, it's not a bad record actually. Punt the clock. It, it, it's in a. It might be in the 
sort of second, third tier, you know, second tier, third. <laughs> well, it was interesting because when you listen to Every Day I Write the Book, I mean, the bass playing on there is another one where it, it, it's probably not anything that anyone would... What you came up with is a very, you know, uh, kind of distinct part. And you actually... And, and you're... you're 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 pretty modest throughout your book, but also you mentioned you know this that bass player actually wrote this whole thing about every day I read yeah, the book and a, how they they did a transcription and a breakdown of it and everything. But you know at the time I did it, there were, Dave Robinson, who was Jake Rivera's partner at Stiff Records, was sitting in the studio and he's saying, "There's just something wrong with that bass part. That's not you know because they want it to sound like like a session guy would do on a normal." soul record instead of playing something distinctive you know like all the the arpeggios at the beginning and the and the you know that was that's like a little epiphany for me when i worked out what bark was doing you know with inversions and things he'd not not playing roots playing round the playing round the notes using fifths and thirds and stuff and um and 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 it's quite it's quite bouncy, bright, poppy, isn't it? Bouncy and right. bright, the bass part towards the end and things, you know. And um, but that's what people seem to over the years people like. And and I thought, well, I'm so glad I don't listen to all these people that know better than I do. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, and even and Steve Naive's uh, keyboard part on that also is very is kind of like sort of bouncing off yeah, of the bass. Yeah. It's they're, they're they're it's a very jittery you know it, uh, arrangement on that. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The keyboard a lot of the time the keyboards are uh, are doing something equally you know equally um, inventive and distinctive. I wouldn't. I'm not saying it's all all me, you know, by any manner of means. But um, yeah. So so, Langer Winstanley. I, I know that you have said and people have described the the production process as more like sort of recording this track separately instead of you guys playing together as a band. Was that true on Punch the Clock and Goodbye Cruel World, or just more true on Goodbye Cruel World? Because you you no, do sound no, like more we... you sound more like a band on Punch the Clock than you do on Goodbye Cruel World. We always, we never, const I think we only ever constructed a couple of tracks with them. I think um, that, um, that, oh, I've forgotten the blooming name of it now. Um, um, the Hall and Oats thing. Oh, Only Not Flame in Town? That's, yeah. The one that Daryl uh, Hall sang with him. Yeah, that, yeah, there's, um, that one, yeah. That was, I think, there were a couple that were constructed, but everything we've done, we've normally played bass, drums, guitar, keyboard, guide vocal, and then overdubbed or, you know, uh, added a harmony or added an extra part, a guitar part or a keyboard part. Or something. But that's, it's, I can't think of many songs that were constructed um one track at a time really can't well it's interesting if you listen to on goodbye cruel world a song like the deportees club and then mm. you skip ahead to you know like i hope you're happy now or something else from blood and chocolate mm. i mean one of you sounds like a band going full throttle and deportees club just sounds like you sort of playing with handcuffs on a little bit like it just oh, doesn't we were that, that was a miserable record we were all nobody wanted to make that record 
nobody was enjoying it. We were all going, you know, I told you the the uh, the story about, you know, I was just going walking around the streets, you know, and Clive Langer came up and said, what do you think? And I said, shall we, you know, shall we carry on? Or what? I said, it's not my call, is it? You know. <laughs> right. It's, it's, he, so Elvis did his first solo tour before that album came out, and I saw him in Philadelphia, and he played, I think, six of the songs that, that hadn't been released yet on Goodbye Cruel World, and he's playing it right. all solo, you know, and, and so very sparse, you know, arrangements. And, and I thought, oh, it's going to be this really dark, brooding record, and Only Flame in Town was this kind of 6-8, Otis Redding-like ballad, and, and it all sounded like that, and so when I put on the record when it came out, and that blaring uh, you know, bing, the, the saxophone and the I was like, wait, oh, this is Only Flame in Town? I just, oh, I, I had no idea that, that was going to be the same song. That bloody saxophone. <laughs> it would have been better if he'd done it as a solo album, to be honest, because um, then he could have been, he could have and wallowed in his own misery instead of making us all wallow in it. But, um, <laughs> but it was a miserable record, and we all know it's the worst record we did. So. He put it in the liner notes of what, as the, I think it was the Ryko disc yeah. reissue. It's like, Congratulations, this is the worst record we ever made. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's this, um, I can't even think, I can't think that there's anything on on it particularly that in terms of, you know, songs or playing that I'd want to write home about. Well, let's see. You had peace in our time. I mean, even, even good, even, um, even all this useless beauty had that, um, complicated shadows on, which wasn't a bad track. Yeah, that's a great they, track. They cut, cut in the bit of the live show. Um, that sounds like street fighting man. Right. I actually, one of the things I love about that is how that record is like this really slow record and the first three songs are these kind of like ballads and then you have complicated shadow which kind of starts off as a slow thing and then finally just kind of explodes mm. and cuts to the live thing and that's a great yeah. moment the, the thing that i wanted to have happen is that then i wanted the next song to be fast and the next song yeah. to be fast and like sort of there was sort of like a build-up no, and then no, it kind of retreats that, back into this ballad record no that that album has got one that one good moment on it and that's that's what you get i like yeah. i like more of it than you do i think but i i uh but but yeah, we'll come back to that one. Um, but uh, well, so so after Goodbye Cruel World, he went and did King of America, and that was. I'm wondering about the thing with King of America is that is that on one hand, I feel like he after having you know too much of the sort of synthy stuff going on, it's it's much more of sort of a songwriting record. Yeah, well, the other, we only we only played on one track. You're just on, on Suit of Lights. Yeah. Were you, we like, were on hold there, or, like, what was... You know there were two bands sitting around in the studio in different rooms. Right. And that's... So we were like, we were like the jilted bride, you know. Or we were like the, uh... Or like the, um... You know... <laughs> he's... We know he's with his mistress, but we can't do anything, you know. Like the rejected wife or something. See, what um, I'm wondering is, if he had sort of come to you guys and said, look... 
I want to do this kind of stripped down rootsy record with like guys who used to play with Elvis Presley and you know yeah. we're just going to do that and then I'm going to do yeah. an attraction album afterward kind of like Neil Young would do his Crazy Horse record and then his other record yeah, yeah. if he'd come uh, to you ahead of time and done that would yeah. that have made things better or was this just at the point I where you're like I don't know because he didn't he didn't know what he wanted at the time that's at the time when he decided he wasn't El Elvis Costello anymore right. and he wanted to be Declan but then you know Declan Patrick Aloysius McManus because he added the Aloysius, but um, but uh, that was when he was um, well, yeah, that was when he was a bit confused. I think about what he wanted to do anyway. He, he, he uh, you know, I mean, we've all over the years we've all said I've had enough of this, you know, and then somebody else has talked one of us round, you know. But he quit more than most. You know, I've had it enough. I'm quitting, you know, and I have to go go and get him in the. Pete or I, usually me or Pete, you know, will go and say, listen, you know, let's talk it through kind of thing. But, um, yeah, but at that time, you know, his big his big buddy was T-Bone and he, he wanted to go, I think he wanted to go solo. I think he wanted to get rid of us, but he didn't know what to do if he did get rid of us. And then he, so he had two bands, you know, and then he had the, at some point he had the string quartet and then at another point he just went completely rogue but you know he um he kind of he wanted to get rid of us but he didn't want to say listen guys i'm calling it a day you know he kind of I'll keep him around just in case. <laughs> but do you feel like sort of looking back, I mean, he's obviously a totally musically restless soul. And he, I mean, and you could hear, I mean, you could listen just on trust, you know, like what you, here's your country song and here's your piano ballad and here's your sort of squeeze like pop song. I mean, I mean, in Imperial Bedroom too. I mean, he's, he's constantly sort of genre hopping and he wants to do yeah, all this different yeah. stuff. Do you think sort of looking back, he could have, if he'd all been sort of clearer of mind and, and well, you know, knew what we you were, were doing. Able... Could he have? Could he have said, "Hey, look, I want to do this kind of record, but then I also still want to come back and do a, an attractions record," as opposed to just like getting rid of you, just maybe yeah, pausing he, you yeah, or something I like that. Yeah, I guess he'd never given us. He'd never. He never gave us musical direction. Um, we'd left it to us, and we usually intuitively did it right. But if he'd never said, "I want to change this," you know, completely kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's like it's the old what what if this and what if that, you know. I mean, you cannot, you can't, um, you know. It's it's interesting for people to sit around and speculate, but at the end of the day, what happened happened, and who knows? Right. But is that, is that what sort of you know affected the mood of Blood and Chocolate? Is that at that point you all sort of felt like, well, you just had your affair, and now you want to come back home? Uh, yeah, well, it was still fairly tense, but I think he he was, you know, I mean, he was, it's like a method actor when he did that song, I Want You, which I don't, that psychotic ballad, as I call it. Right. I mean, it, it was like, he was so obnoxious, winding everybody up, but I realized later that he wanted everyone to feel really bad and uptight to do that song in the manner in which it should be done because it's about him wanting to murder somebody, isn't it? You know? <laughs> right. So, um... That whole album yeah. has that kind of razor's edge to it. 
yeah, you made it sound yeah. like Nick Lowe was sort of neck less, uh, you know, kind of easygoing than he had been for the first five as well. Well, uh, well, he'd been he'd been sidelined for a bit as well, hadn't he? Right. <laughs> so uh, I think he. I don't know. You know, I don't remember him. I've got no memory of him from that record whatsoever. So that's interesting. No anecdote at all. Hmm. Well, I don't. Re- I hardly. Re- I don't remember. I don't remember what the control room looked like. I don't remember. I can remember standing in the studio playing where everybody was standing, but that's about. That's it. I went to the studio every day on my bicycle along the along the towpath along the river and rode home on the, on the, in the evening and and um, yeah. Was was the tension between the three of you and Elvis, or was everyone kind of at each other? No, it was between it was always Elvis and the three of us, not not you know everybody against each other no i thought it was an interesting observation you made from earlier when you made the uh the attractions album mad about the wrong boy that you felt like it was the wrong move because it made it seem like it was you three were the band and then there was elvis as opposed to the four of you were the band they never work those things and then of course it immediately it made yeah exactly what you said it immediately Demotes doesn't it? Separates the band out and then hits the singer and the band then. Not a band. No. No. That was a bad move. I didn't want I didn't want to do it. So at some point afterward you wrote the big wheel and I finally read it last year at some point um i'd always heard about it and i finally chased down a copy of it and it's it's a very impressionistic uh you know book about sort of what it's like to be on tour in america with this band um and nobody's identified by name it's a novel um but i was expecting it to be this kind of you know torched you know scorched earth sort of thing that made, you know, Elvis look really bad. And I thought he looked fine. Like I, I was like, it, it was much more of a sort of an artful piece of work than I expected. And not like, like, except for, you know, the fact that, you know, the singer is writing songs all the time, which I would expect. Oh, it's not, uh, it's, it's not like Harry writing about the queen. <laughs> no, it, 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 I mean, there are so many rock memoirs that are, it's not a Harry and Meghan job. No, yeah. it was, um, uh, but then again, the the idea that I got sacked from the attractions for writing the big wheel was only ever a myth anyway. That largely, largely made up by me to generate some notoriety for the book and get people to buy it. But um, no, it, we 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 um, we as you the, the story in rough notes is more accurate. You know that um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that we, um, I fell out with him because he, I thought he was treating Steve naive rather badly when Steve was obviously having a breakdown, basically, not to put too fine a point on it. And, um, I thought he was not helping the situation. And, um, I mean, Steve naive came out of rehab to do a gig at the Albert Hall, and then Elvis was kind of baiting him on stage and i thought this is not good you know and and uh 
Steve Nave was the one was the one who actually confronted Elvis in public about winding down the attractions at the gig, you know, in in a bar, in a theatre bar. So uh, I'm not really the the heavy the heavyweight of the piece that some people might think, or the cause of the the discord and you know that ensued. Um, uh, but nobody, I never gave anybody um, a clear explanation of it till I wrote rough notes. And obviously right. now I do interviews, I, I set the record straight, but the band that fizzled out and fell apart, you know, due to the, it's not one specific thing. It's the kingdom America thing and various, uh, you, it, it's obvious the, the sell by date had been reached and then he went off and did uh, spike and other things. And then, you know, it was Mitchell Froome that engineered a reformation of the band for a couple of albums and a couple of world tours and things before it all, all went belly up again. Do you feel like of the four of you, you and Elvis maybe had sort of the most in common? I mean, you, the two of you were rooming together when you're touring. It seems like you both have kind of similar sort of like you're both very well read and I'm not that the other ones aren't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. We were, people forget what we were, you know, we we I saw more of him than I did of the, of, of the woman I married, <laughs> and same for him, obviously. But um, um, yeah, we I mean we were gigging together, rooming together, and we still went out to lunch together. He used to come around my my apartment and stay the night and things, you know, and um, so uh, yeah, I mean we never went on holiday together, but we. We were fairly, um, you know, fairly close-knit unit. And then uh, I, um, well, I've actually just written a new, another volume of memoirs, which is not musical. It's about all the stuff I did in between, which I find more interesting anyway. <laughs> you know, all the martial arts stuff. and Bruce Yeah, we haven't even talked about Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee, and, and well, uh, that's, uh, that's maybe for another day, but um, yeah. But uh, I've written about all that stuff, and and um, I think we got into um, when when Kate caught the read, and I'm afraid it, we got into a bit of a spinal tap scenario when she came on the scene. You know, the dreaded Yoko bandwife syndrome, right? And uh, I think that was what kind of finished things off more than anything. Well, like you write about, like, I mean, on Mighty Like a Rose, he had that song, How to Be Dumb, which you write about as being, you know, like sort of an attack on, on you. And, and oh, it's an attack on me, I said, yeah. It's like, as I said at the time, it's, it's like being savaged by Bambi. <laughs> but I, but I was like, but I was listening to. I mean, it's. I didn't think. I, I actually really disliked that album when it came out. There, are, there are a few good songs on it, but it's a very fussy record. And the stuff that sounds like it should be played by the attractions really needs the attractions. Um, I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, but I just that was the album that really frustrated me. And 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 that album and that song just kind of works up this froth. And I'm like, what's why? Like I don't. I didn't. I didn't get it, and I didn't it think was it was very, like. It was a very angry song for a fairly innocuous thing. I mean, he was like, he was like. It's the same as I hope you're happy now. Who I'm not sure that I'm not still to this day not sure who that's an attack on. I think it might be Prince. Um, but um, Prince? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who who is who is who that's 
referring to, but... Um, Why was he mad at Prince? I have no idea. It might have been... <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I've just always had that feeling, but... Um, but you just uh, you just thought, oh, I think this is about Prince. But yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why. Some I know else. Prince later later prevented him from covering Pop Life on records. Oh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. It, it might be somebody. It, 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 you know. Um, but um, how to be dumb? I mean, it's like, and he's getting himself into a working himself up into a real <laughs> paddy. You know. <laughs> it's not really, it's not, it's like um, taking a sledgehammer to crack a nut, isn't it, or whatever they say. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, anyway, there it is, and we, we, you know, people still cite that as this terrible fall breakup on YouTube, and do you know they fell and listened to this? I said, we did two albums and three world tours after that, mate. We're not carrying that, you know. You're the one that's... I spoke to Elvis not long ago. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago over the, the Spanish Model Project. No, well, I didn't speak to him. We emailed each other. And uh, I spoke to Pete Thomas, you know. And we couldn't have been more, couldn't have been more cordial. So, so you and Elvis are cordial with each other now? Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah. we had a very, a very uh, pleasant exchange of emails the other day. Taking a while to get there, but uh, yeah. Was there was there one point recently where someone broke the ice? Because it sounded like you were pretty, you know, estranged for a while. Oh, we haven't. We've been estranged for I don't know years, donkey, twenty decades. But no, it was um, it was well, it was the Spanish model thing, wasn't it? Because I obviously a contributor to it, and so I was I was talking to Pete, and and then. You know, Elvis sent his regards, and then I uh, I sent a message to Elvis, and then he got in touch and said, "Oh, thanks very much for that." And then, then we had a little chat, and you know, that's nice. And um, I won't tell you what about. A lot of it was quite, actually quite personal, but it was, um, yeah, it's fine. Well, well, that makes me feel better about the world. <laughs> it does. Did it make me feel? It made me. No, it makes me feel better about the world. I, I hope it made you feel better. Well, you know, the guy was ill. The, Elvis was ill, wasn't he? A couple of years, ago, not long ago, he had to stop a tour because he right. he, he had a you know an issue, medical issue, serious one. Cancer. And, uh, you know, and you, at a point at the point, you know, at the age you've got to, and the situation, you know, and and I uh, thinking, well, this it's better to get things straightened out now, isn't it? Than say, I wish I'd said it. You know, before I stepped under a bus. <laughs> were, were you in touch with him when he was ill? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. But um, you know, we mentioned that anyway. So, so I said, look, you know, it doesn't matter what. It doesn't really matter. All it's only soap opera. You know, it's only soap opera. All of it. You know, uh, that's going on. You know. Well, I think the thing that people, of course, would the the, pe the thing that people would find relevant would be thinking, "Will you ever play on stage with them again?" Uh, no idea. I mean, I, I you know, the, I, I saw Pete saw Pete Thomas on put a face on 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 um, put a post up on Facebook recently, and I said, "Stop posting all that commie bullshit and go and sort out an advance for the record." You know, because he's he's um. He was a big Bernie Sanders fan, so um, so I, um, 
Yeah, anyway, don't bring politics into it, otherwise we open a new can we open a new can of worms, don't we? Alright, I'll steer clear of that. Um but so when you came back to do Brutal Youth, was that Mitchell Froom calling you or did Elvis call you? Like how did that because it seems like they were already recording with, with so Nick Lowe was already recording bass parts for that record and then they brought you in he was doing bass I was I was Mitchell very kindly let me use his house in Los Angeles after he moved to New York when he married Susan Vega so I was ensconced in um, Mitchell's house as a sort of housekeeper while he while it was on the market you know I was keeping it tidy and there were people in fixing things and whatever. So I was there. And, um, <clears throat> and, uh, he did the, uh, you know, if he spoke, if he rang you, would you talk to him, to both of us? And we both said yes. So, um, eventually I got a call from, I got a call from Elvis about finishing, basically to finish off the bass parts that Nick Lowe was finding tricky. So, um, so at the time, there'd just been a, a massive earthquake in L.A., and the minute I picked the phone up to speak to Elvis, there was an aftershock. So <laughs> you won't, be you won't <laughs> believe it, but the whole room, the earth is moving. <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, so I went, um, I went back and um, finished, the album, finished that album off, and then we started touring again, and it was... Um, it worked really well for a couple of years. Well, and you're on kind of the best songs too, or a bunch of them. I mean, and when you guys are playing 13 Steps Lead Down, it's it's there. There's definitely that feeling of you haven't missed any sort of beat from being away because that's just totally clicked in. Yeah, there was a couple of um, there's a couple of um, I mean, we did a we did a song on that record where there's a gap, and then everybody comes in and hits the note. The sound and Mitchell Froom just jumped and said, "Oh, that's a band that's played together for years." You know, it's just Oomph, all hitting the same note, but I mean, there's a couple of good shows from that era on um, Letterman, right. I think, you know, from 95, you know, where we do Kind of Murder or 13 Steps, you know, and it sounds pretty, and it sounds, and Man Out of Time, sounds fine. Sounds like a good band, all sounds Donkey Donkey and Jules Holland and things, so... Fortunately, these things are on YouTube. Now, do you think if Elvis had decided to follow that album up with like a you know flat-out rock record instead of doing this sort of sixty-style ballads thing with his voice way up front and all of you sort of pushed back, that that might have worked, or was it just personal uh, that, stuff? That, I feared the worst when well when he said I'm going to have the voice really up front, and I mean I once once walking to a, somewhere where that record was being played, and I was. Usually you hear the the bass drum first, don't you? And the bass when you're hearing music from a distance. But I thought, what the hell's that foghorn going on? You know, it was the voice was louder than anything. And uh, I said to Pete, you've probably seen it in the book anyway. But I said, oh, looks like we're going to be a karaoke machine. You know, it's not going to be a mu an album with music. It's just going to be a a smear of music for the voice to blare over and it kind of was well and again if you sort of if to play devil's advocate you know elvis is this you know restless musical adventurer and he has in his mind that he wants to do this sort of style of album if it weren't for the fact that you guys were his band 
would there be anything wrong with him wanting to do that sort of album? Like, was it just the wrong fit for the attractions, or was it just like, uh, no, he just shouldn't have done that record? I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I think at that time it was just, <laughs> it was just wearing out again. You know, there was, there was the dynamic. I've said the the sort of spinal tap dynamic was going on as well. I mean, so, um, so yeah. Um, it, um, I didn't like that record at all. And he was doing, oh, dear me, there was all these, there was all these, um, playing the song. We hadn't even rehearsed them. We were playing on stage in New York with chord charts and things, you know, and he was, he hated, it was, God give me strength. He wouldn't, I said, oh, go and get another, you know, you don't get another bass player then, if you, you know, whatever. It's, it, 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 it's that, I don't know what I want, but I don't want that kind of sometimes. But he was having these long, fraught email and um, uh, demo exchanges with Burt Bacharach at the time. Uh, and Burt Bacharach sounds more like Elvis and Elvis, you know, for pernicketiness there's a, f- a fa- fa- famous story of how he drove Scylla Black to tears doing anyone who had a heart or wasn't there so um, so I imagine the two of them together was a team from hell yeah and, and so God Give Me Strength was he did that for that movie um, that was that was coming out around then but the, and then all, th- all this useless beauty has kind of these back rack like ballads on it so i don't know whether that was all sort of tied together in his in his mind i don't know i don't, I don't know i mean at, at, at that point he it, it wasn't i mean he'd done the string quartet thing he was you know it was the uh i've got the nigerian nose flute ensemble in next week and the icelandic i mean steel drum band and whatever <laughs> so why do you think it is that that ultimately you know sort of Pete and Steve sort of stayed in the fold and it was just too much for you? Um, because the, I think with, um, huh. um, hmm. temperament. Um, I mean, it wasn't the, um, the, the, final split came when there was a guy in the office who wanted to be Elvis's manager and we did a tour of so many weeks and we were getting paid weekly money into our bank accounts over 10 weeks and at some point I noticed that the payments weren't going in every seven days they were going in every eight nine days and that over the course of the 10 weeks only nine payments had gone in which I thought was a little I would never ever 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 had problems like that with Elvis or Jake. This was a smart ass from the office, right? I pointed it out. Um, I took it to court. I was awarded the extra week that should have been paid. But somebody, either Elvis or this guy, um, decided to escalate it to um, another level and got these ex extremely expensive lawyers to challenge it and for me to 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 then um contest the rightness of the case which had been decided in my favor would have cost me about 60 grand so i was basically the usual you know money buys justice thing so i just had had to swallow 
um, um, give up my claim and pay expenses of about 18 grand. So that's pretty much why I didn't go back. <laughs> and I said to Pete and Elvis, I said, don't you want to show some solidarity with me over this situation? Yeah, we'll just keep taking the money. If we if we got done out of a week's money, there'll be more. There'll be more, you know, tours to come and everything. So they weren't concerned of a of it being a matter of principle. So I haven't told that story before, but that's pretty much. Huh. But I don't blame Elvis. Yeah. He's always been, he's always been very straight, very honest with money, very fair, very generous. And and so on. So it's not his. I know I could name the person, but um, I'm not going to because they still might sue. Uh, it sounds like it's just a matter of math. Like you know, if you, you it was you, a matter of principle. Yeah. Uh, and and he decided, you know, he decided to back his minion, and Pete and Steve de- decided to, you know, to let it slide. And I thought, nah, not me. I'm just like that. You know, I hate, I hate anything like that. So it's happened to me before. And uh, I mean, I found out about, about one not long ago about a band I was in where the guy had done a side deal with a record company and made enough money to buy a house without telling the rest of the band. (laughs) Wow. Only just this, only just last year I found out about that, you know? So, um, yeah. So but many bands get screwed up with these money legal deals and, you know, from, yeah, from Alan Klein just, on, you know. It just, Alan Klein, I was talking about him exactly yesterday. Badfinger. I was talking oh about it to somebody today. Um, Mike Jeffries and Jimi Hendrix and T-Rex and, you know, we did we did okay with Elvis. We, hadn't, we never had a contract with him or the record company. It was all done on a handshake. And he never, uh, have to, he never dishonored the handshake or the deal we had with him, and neither Jake Riviera. It was somebody else being a smart-ass who actually, I think, had ambitions to become Elvis' manager. Hmm. But there you go. Well, He's gone now, too. So are you are you playing these days? I do bits and bobs. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I do. I do um, sessions for friends. Really, um, you know, there's no there's no money to be made in music since uh, Danny Alec founded Spotify and stole everything. Right. So it's a it, yeah. The whole streaming model is not working. It's only out a labor of for it's creatives. only going to be a labor of love. I don't know what's going to happen with with Spanish model. With st- we do get we do get some you know you, you know what Spotify royalties are like. Their their streaming royalties are notorious for being bad. So I don't know what what will happen with um, Spanish model um, whether whether somebody will say we want you to do a concert we want to get the attractions back together in rio and buenos aires and what do you think uh, i'm not holding my breath <laughs> would you do it would i do it i think that's best not best not answered hypothetically i will see what i will if it ever came to that was we'll, you know yeah We'll see. Well, keep me posted. We'll, keep us I posted. Mean, who yeah. can, I mean, that's just... 
It, it, uh, yeah. I mean, I saw Elvis and the Imposters doing, you know, their Imperial Bedroom sort of tour. I mean, they didn't play the album in a row, but played, I think, all, I think they played everything but Boy With a Problem, and it just was, you know, missing one key element from, you know, like, no no offense to Davy Farragher, but it just was not the same no. thing. No, of course it, of course it won't be. No, I mean, even Pete said it's some, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, but even Pete said he gets embarrassed sometimes. You know, playing some, you know, like human hands or something goes along. Well, it's actually a bit embarrassing. Mm. But there you go. If he wants a quiet life, he's got it. Well, well, I'm glad you're still playing. And do you do you listen to Elvis's music, or do you kind of stay away from it? No, I don't listen to. I don't listen. I mean, if somebody, you know, people post things online, I listen to. Um, if somebody posts something and says I like this or so I'll listen to an old track I don't listen to any of the to the new stuff um but I tend I have a funny th- thing about listening to music I tend to if somebody puts something up on Facebook or somebody puts a link to something I'm, I'll end up you know watching something uh, that I hadn't planned to watch. I mean, I ended up watching the Go-Go's the other day, you know, we got the beat and then sitting down and playing along with that or or the bangles or something, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to, I actually contacted Kathy Valentine of the Go-Go's and she was uh, the next one I'm talking to. Right, good bass line. I will, I will we- tell her you say that. We got the beat. Absolutely. Good, good bass line. I'd be as happy to have played that as Pump It Up, honestly. So you can tell you can tell her. And she's written a good book as well, hasn't she? As she has. I read it. It is very good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good band. Good band. I mean, I discover a lot of this stuff after the event, you know, um, that I didn't realize at the time. Yeah, and she was a guitarist and sort of learned all of their songs on the fly to try out as their bass player. Yeah, 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 they're um, good band. And because uh, I voted them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when everyone was all voted for them. I don't know if they got in in the end. They did, yeah, going, this fall. Oh, well, there you go. I voted, tell her I voted for them. I and will. I didn't vote, well, I didn't vote for Dionne Warwick. Because she didn't really write the songs or play anything, you know. She's a good singer, but and not that, that, that and not really rock and roll. No, I mean not to be um, snobby about it, but it's rock and roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, that was, um, and I didn't vote for many people. I think it was her and the Go Go's and Tina Turner and someone else. I think they were all they were all women, though. No Todd Rundgren um, for you. Probably Carol King because she's got a pretty good. Um, What's the word? I t- not inventory or whatever CV Re- resume. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Over the spanning decades. Yeah. So um, yeah, good. Well, thank you so much. It's this has been fantastic, and I'm I'm glad you uh, uh, were, were we were able to make this work. And it's just like it's a real privilege for me to get to talk to you because I mean. I really like, I think if I look back on, you know, I've, I've, I was Beatles and then I was Elvis Costello and the attractions. And those are like the two that I've listened to the most of anything pretty, pretty yeah, easily. Well, so. that's good. My, my three are the Beatles, Abba and Steely Dan. I've listened to a lot of uh, Steely Dan also. Um, yeah. Where, yeah. Where are you on sort of the post breakup records? And do you think there's still Steely Dan if Walker Be- Walter Becker's not with them? Uh, I've seen I've seen a couple of the 
gigs without Walter Becker and guitar playing wise that John Harrington who's been with them a long time is is a good player um I don't obviously they've lost something but I'm glad he didn't you know I'm glad he saw fit to carry on right you know I mean they they're all they're always watchable their gigs and they I can't even think of a, a you'd be hard pushed to find a bad Steely Dan track they're just I've never found I've never found one that I can't listen to did you ever volunteer to become you know, their one of their bassists I'd love I don't know if, I don't think I'm technically good enough to to um to, to play with Steely Dan actually I don't think I've got the chops they're they're, they're you know but um the jazz chops you know but uh, I, that's overrated. Well, yeah, you have the feel. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'd, 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 I'd consider that the ultimate accolade. Actually, being asked to play with Steely Dan, but the one, the band I did want to, I did want to replace John Entwistle instead of Pino Palladino, who, um, and I think I'd have done a better job to, to, to be honest. But there we are. Did you did you contact uh, Thompson about that? I, I let it be known that I was. But then again, probably a thousand other bass players probably did. You know. Ah, uh, they should have chosen you. I'm biased, but but absolutely, that would have been fun. I should have done it, but there we are. But he's a he's a safe pair of hands. Well, they went another direction, didn't they? He got extra guitar players and keyboard players, and uh, you know, so it's it's another thing now. He said, Pete, everybody, Pete Townsend said he want, everybody wanted him to carry on like they were and die on stage, you know. And he's kind of another one who's opted for a quiet life, but who can blame him? Well, well, yeah, it seems like he and Roger Daltrey aren't even on the same continent when they're working together at this point. Yeah, yeah, there's, um, they're not the same, you know. I mean, I'd rather remember The Who from the 70s, you know when they were the best band in the world. Right. Yeah, and and, and they're an interesting template for you guys too because it is that, you know, th- you know, best rock band, best live band, best rock band. Yeah. Great. No doubt. Well, we'll we'll do another one on Bruce Lee and martial arts sometime. Thank you so much, Bruce Thomas. Uh uh thank you so much for being on the Carol Popcast and uh we'll talk to you again soon and and hear you hear you in the meantime uh sooner than that. All right. Happy days. That wraps up episode two of the Carol Popcast. Thanks so much to Bruce Thomas, whose memoir, Rough Notes, can be bought as a trade paperback and on Kindle via Amazon. Go to Bruce's website, brucethomas.co.uk, to learn more about his music and career, as well as books he's written about martial artist Bruce Lee and British boxer Tyson Fury. The next Carol Popcast guest will be another bassist, Kathy Valentine of the Go-Go's. Bruce Thomas told me he loves her playing and gave the Go-Go's his vote for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's a fan of his as well. She'll talk about her rocket ride with the Go-Go's, her songwriting on such hits as Vacation and Head Over Heels, and her deep dive of a memoir, All I Ever Wanted. 
Thanks to Luke Carlozo, the producer engineer behind the Carol Pop theme and this particular interview for production, engineering, and arranging work. Check out Karma Productions Worldwide. It's Karma with a C. And email Lou at Lou at Quoted.com. L-O-U at Q-W-O-T-E-D.com. Thank you to Marty Rosenbaum master web developer, and excellent human being. The Carol Popcast was produced by the incomparable Chris Swake, who could never be a temperamental rock star because he gets along with everyone. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit our website, carolpop.com, for lively arts and cultural conversation and more about my writing and the Caro Popcast. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.